What does it mean to have complete and private ownership over the most fundamental forms of identity that we possess? In January, the government began collecting DNA from detainees at the border to ensure that families are who they say they are. But how may this act of security, in so doing, begin to encroach upon our private lives? Helping us through this is Natalie Ram, who is an associate professor of law at the University of Maryland. Natalie is a top scholar on the intersection of genetic privacy and the law, publishing groundbreaking research in Harvard Law Review, Stanford Law, Columbia, and many more. This episode lies at the intersection of where security and privacy meets. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. You have a background in the, at least the, the legal aspect of genetic privacy and what does that mean in the legal sphere, right? I do, yeah. I have spent um, my legal career in academia focused on issues of genetic privacy, principally when does the government and law enforcement in particular have the right to access your DNA in what ways and for what purposes. CBS News confirms the Department of Homeland Security will bring unprecedented DNA testing at the border with Mexico as soon as next week. Now, the department says the program will target human traffickers who are smuggling and exploiting children. It also hopes to slow illegal crossings that have overwhelmed the border agents. Could you tell us a little bit of the, the background of this policy? So I think that this policy arrives at the crossroads of two different axes uh, of policy development. So on the one hand, we have uh, growing uh, efforts by the federal government to collect genetic data from individuals at the border and in connection with immigration. Earlier in 2019, when there was the deployment of rapid DNA analysis um, purportedly to verify familial uh, relatedness for family immigration claims, well, good morning. DHS officials tell us they are launching this program because since October, they have found about a thousand fake families trying to cross the border illegally. Simply put, that's where an adult is paired with a child who they are trying to pass off as their own. Most of the families that come through here with children are genuinely looking for a better life, but they have actually seen cases where children are being used as pawns because smugglers are telling them right now it is easier to cross as a family I've At the time that that pilot program was rolled out, at least news reports surrounding that indicated that the executive uh, said, we're, we're doing this on a limited basis. There's no intention to, um, to make this a uh, broad-based DNA collection effort. And while the DHS says the samples and all the data will be destroyed after tests are run, the ACLU warns the fact that it is even building out this surveillance and infrastructure should trouble us all now. A little side well, note. fast forward a mm. little less than a year, and right. here we are, where now the federal government plans to collect DNA sample from every individual in immigration detention. Now that program is starting out with a couple pilot sites, but uh, mm. with plans to expand over the next three years. So that's axis one, is DNA in connection with immigration mm. specifically. The other axis here is one about government collection of DNA from a broader and broader pool of people for crime detection purposes where the government holds and uses the DNA from individuals uh, basically indefinitely. 
right? And right. this access goes back to the 1990s when the first uh, law enforcement DNA databases were being set up. And at the time, the when when these DNA databases were getting off the ground, they were collecting DNA only from sexually violent individuals convicted of a, of a of an offense right and over time we've seen those statutes then broadened can you know pretty continuously from sexual offenses to all violent offenses to all felonies to all individuals arrested for a felony and and the same federal statute that gave the attorney general discretion to collect DNA from all individuals in federal custody arrested for a felony hmm. also authorized the attorney general to exercise discretion about mm. whether to also collect DNA from individuals in immigration detention or right. detained by the federal government. Got it. Can you tell us a little bit about the rationale, the driving force behind implementing this policy? So I expect that the primary rationale is the rationale that generally underlies uh, government expansions in DNA collection efforts, and that is crime detection and crime control. Mm -hmm. As we've seen DNA databases expand, the rationale has long been individuals who come into contact with the government uh, are perceived to be more likely to go on to commit future crimes, or at least if they do, now the government will have a tool to identify them more easily and you know, bring them to justice should they commit a criminal act in the future. And that's been a rationale underlying um, these kinds of expansions. I think there will also, uh, if and when this gets challenged in court, I mm. suspect uh, that the government's argument will be is what the Supreme Court said when it approved uh, as consistent with the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, mm. collection of DNA from individuals arrested but not yet convicted of crimes, which right. is that once you are in government custody, the government has an interest in knowing who you are, and that includes mm. knowing what criminal acts you've committed in the past, potentially. Right. And so that kind of identification rationale, which is really quite similar to a law enforcement and crime detection rationale, um, I think is also likely to, to be in play here. I, I think the actual agency, it is CODIS, correct? CODIS oh, yeah. is a database that's operated by the FBI and right. that uh, contains components from the federal government, the District of Columbia, and all 50 states. And right. it's basically the database clearinghouse or the DNA clearinghouse through which all of these profiles are matched and uh, and the profile mm -hmm. data is stored. Right. So first starting with the DNA collection of criminals or suspected criminals, then uh, this program and the capabilities expanded to detainees. So what is stopping its further escalation or expansion into whether it's citizens or just expanding in general? So I think that's a great question. And I think it is an issue that ordinary U.S. citizens should keep their eyes on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the case where the Supreme Court approved, again, uh, the collection of DNA from individuals merely arrested and not yet convicted of a crime, that case, Maryland versus King, mm -hmm. uh, Justice Scalia wrote the dissent in that case. Make no mistake about it. Because of today's decision, 
your DNA can be taken and entered into a national database if you are ever arrested, rightly or wrongly, and for whatever reason. He was joined by three other justices. It was a close five to four case. Mm. Um, And in his dissenting opinion, he observed that the identification rationale Mm -hmm. uh, was pretty flimsy. It looked a lot like crime detection, which Mm. is not something different than ordinary law enforcement efforts. And that if all that is required is some sort of contact with a government functionary, or a need for the government to know who you are, then Mm. that applies similarly to students in school, Mm. individuals seeking a driver's license, Mm. individuals registering to vote, etc. This will solve some extra crimes, to be sure. But so would taking your DNA whenever you fly on on an airplane. Surely the TSA must know the identity of the flying public. For that matter, so would taking your children's DNA when they start public school. And so the dissenting opinion in Maryland versus King was at great pains to say, when we take the step, when this country takes the step and moves beyond individuals convicted of a crime to people who are merely in government custody, even on probable cause that they have committed a particular crime, right? We are opening the door to many other expansions in Mm -hmm. DNA collection. And we're seeing now another one, right, Mm -hmm. to all individuals in immigration detentions. Mm -hmm. There's also the fact that there are now new DNA identification technologies Mm -hmm. that law enforcement are exploiting that give them access to many more people's DNA. And so maybe they don't need us all to be in CODIS because they can Mm -hmm. reach us other ways. It may be wise, as the court obviously believes, to make the Leviathan all-seeing so that he may protect us all the better. But the proud men who wrote the Charter of Our Liberties would not have been so eager to open their mouths for royal inspection. I respectfully dissent. Once you sign an agreement with a third party, entity? Does that no longer warrant a a warrant? (laughs) So you've asked um, a bunch of interesting questions about the Fourth Amendment. And so we should flag at the outset that if we're going to talk about the Fourth Amendment, we should note that the Fourth Amendment applies a little differently when we're talking about the U.S. border. Mm, Um, And so it's not clear how well uh, the doctrine that the Supreme Court identifies in Carp- in the Carpenter case mm-hmm. is going to apply at the U.S. border. And then there are lots of questions about how how vast is the U.S. border, mm. right? The federal government has asserted that's any anywhere within 100 miles of any border, right? All, all of the state of Florida lies within what the federal government says is the U.S. border, where the Fourth Amendment does not apply in the usual way, mm. right? But we can talk about the Fourth Amendment, and I think it's important to do so, right? So in the Carpenter case, the U.S. Supreme Court said that law enforcement needs to get a warrant if they want to access more than more than seven days worth of your cell phone's location data, your cell site location information uh, from your cell phone provider. Uh, Now, traditionally, the rule had been since the 1970s, basically, that if you gave data to a third party, a bank, a cell phone provider, your internet provider, et cetera, uh, that you obviously didn't think that information was very private. 
um, and you assume the risk uh, by voluntarily sharing the data that that the person that you shared it with would turn around and share it with the police. So the courts had basically said, if you share your data, you no longer have what's called a reasonable expectation of privacy in that data. Mm -hmm. And so law enforcement access of that data does not constitute a search. No warrant requirement. Fourth Amendment simply doesn't apply. Right. In the Carpenter case, the court steps that back a little bit, at least for cell site location data, right? Mm -hmm. And the court says, let's be real here. Since the 1970s, we've had a digital revolution, everything happens online. Mm -hmm. Everything moves through a third-party intermediary, our cell phones, our emails, our text messages, everything. It mm -hmm. cannot possibly be that all of that information is no longer private or subject to the Fourth Amendment. And so the court kind of says, at least for cell site location data, cops get a warrant, right? Mm -hmm. And the real question coming out of Carpenter is how broadly will Carpenter be applied? Right. There are some cases already indicating that Carpenter may apply to your smart water meter if you live in a neighborhood that has a smart water meter or a smart electric meter where they can where your utility company can track your usage hour by hour of the day rather than, you know, knowing you know, what your meter said uh, on the first day of the month and knowing what it said on the last day of the month and not knowing how you used energy each, any one of those days, mm -hmm. right? Now that we have all that smart technology, maybe that's carpenter protected. And I haven't looked into the terms and conditions of this, but think about the trend of hereditary oh, yes. sites, right? That's right. Mailing in your own DNA to this, once again, this third party and how that might be affected if someone is being suggested for a crime or national security in some sort of sense. Yeah. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about whether and how Carpenter ought to apply to genetic information. And in my scholarship, I've argued that Carpenter should apply to genetic information. Mm -hmm. And it has particular force when we're talking about familial ties. Mm -hmm. uh, but even for uh, for one's own genetic information, that that is data in which a, a person ought now to be recognized to have generally a reasonable expectation of privacy, which means that the government has to satisfy the Fourth Amendment if they want to get your DNA. Right? right now, there are a variety of ways in which law enforcement are already trying to get your DNA without going through the process of getting a warrant. Right. Number one, we know that if you are arrested or convicted of a crime, you have a diminished expectation of privacy. Mm -hmm. And so law enforcement can get your DNA without a warrant for ordinary individuals. You presumably have a robust expectation of privacy. They would need a warrant unless, say, you've um, used a cup and then thrown it away. On that cup is some of your saliva. Your saliva contains your DNA. Mm -hmm. And law enforcement around the country um, have asserted that that is DNA in which you have no expectation of privacy. You threw it away. You abandoned it. You you don't expect it to stay private. I think that is a, a remarkable claim, given that we are constantly shedding DNA and we literally cannot do anything about it short of, gosh, did you ever see the movie Gattaca? Uh, there's oh, a scene no, of an individual trying <laughs> no, not to shed his no, DNA no, no. in ordinary life, and that requires scrubbing yourself down with harsh materials every right. morning oh, in order no. to make sure you're not shedding skin cells. That's too tedious. Right? That That's not reasonable right. to expect people to do that before they mm. move through the world. Just like it's not reasonable to expect individuals not to have a smartphone. Mm -hmm. it's, it is a part of modern life. Right. So I've argued that if you're sending your DNA into one of these, 
you know, direct to consumer DNA companies, that that doesn't forfeit your Fourth Amendment rights. But that's kind of a separate issue mm -hmm. from this collection of DNA at the border, which right. is a compelled collection, mm. right? But of individuals in government custody, and how do those different features weigh against one another in the privacy analysis? And again, right. the border context is underlying all of this. Yes, yes. We're operating under uh, different... Potentially different terms, yeah. right? information on one of the largest cyber attacks to ever hit the United States government. It targeted at least four million federal employees and could affect every government agency. The Secret Service is investigating a major data breach at Target. Sony has confirmed that hackers broke into its PlayStation network, exposing the personal information of up to 77 million users worldwide. Getting into the potential misuses and controversies, the first thing that really comes to my mind is cybersecurity. You have this database that's exchanging not only your data, but information, just information in general between different agencies. And we know there has been multiple breaches where credit card information was taken and distributed, you know, internationally. Right. So <clears throat> are, are we effectively protecting ourselves from bad actors when it comes to this? So I think that CODIS is a is a lower risk database than the direct to consumer databases. If you're mm. going to worry about data security mm. with respect to one of those. And, and mm. there are a couple of reasons for that. One has to do with the data that is being used, the genetic data that's being used. So CODIS DNA profiles look at 40 data points. They're in what's called non-coding DNA, the parts of your DNA that don't represent your traits. Mm. They're, okay. um, they're very good at making one-to-one uh, -one identifications. This DNA came, came from this individual and this other sample of DNA also came from that individual. Um, if you have a complete profile and it's well handled by lab personnel, those identifications are introduced in court all the time. They are highly uh, probative, right? Mm. Um, but they're not all that informative about something other than your identification. We're potentially mitigating the, the privacy the risk, risk mm -hmm. right? CODIS is also designed as a database to be disaggregated and um, and distributed, which is to say that when uh, a lab, say in California, uploads a DNA profile from a crime scene, if they get a hit on a profile of, of a known offender in Arizona, the name of that Arizona past offender does not, or past arrestee, doesn't come up automatically. In fact, the California lab has to reach out to the lab in Arizona to say, we got a match on this profile, Who, what name is associated with that? So the names are all stored locally with the uploading lab. So mm -hmm. because it's distributed, again, the risk of breach is potentially lower, right? But, With mm -hmm. direct-to-consumer data, A, a lot of different companies, and B, they have lots of different practices and data security practices. So the big players in the field, right, your 23andMe, your Ancestry, mm -hmm. maybe your MyHeritage, um, is likely, I think, I don't know, but mm -hmm. I think likely to have better data security than a, than a much smaller shop. And in fact, there have been research studies about data security risks at one of the, uh, the sites most frequently used by law enforcement, um, which is a site called GEDmatch, right? And 
once that news story came out, Genmatch was quickly acquired by, by a private for profit company um, saying we're going to beef up security here. Right, right. Is the country setting a, a precedent for potentially other countries to say travelers who cross their borders collect their information? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So if you look at the kinds of data that we collect from uh, individuals coming through customs now, if you are a non-citizen, I think more information is collected about you, including potentially your fingerprints, though I'm not certain mm -hmm. about that. You know, if you are a citizen, there is some information that can be collected from you, but it's more limited than the kinds of information the federal government or customs can right. um, can compile from individuals who are non-citizens seeking to enter the country. Right. Um, and, you know, turnabout is fair play. So mm -hmm. as we ramp up the kinds of information we collect, uh, that may incentivize other countries to demand more information from us. I think what is most troubling about this new policy mm -hmm. to collect DNA for inclusion in CODIS from everyone in immigration custody is that this is the first time that a government entity for CODIS purposes is collecting um, and for the crime detection function in CODIS is collecting DNA from at least some individuals who have neither been convicted of a crime nor even arrested for a crime. They're neither mm. civilly nor criminally liable. And here I'm thinking about individuals with claims for refugee status, right, right which is a status protected under international law and domestic law, mm -hmm. right? Those individuals have the right to claim the right of refuge. Yeah. Um, and, and if they are, in fact, refugees, then they are not civilly or criminally liable for an immigration offense. If that's correct, then, then this expansion, and if they are in immigration custody or immigration detention, as many of them are, right, and so their DNA is being collected and put into CODIS, that kind of breaks the link that we've had up until now between past criminal conduct, alleged or convicted, and inclusion in the CODIS database, right? And mm -hmm. again, just as the dissenting opinion in Maryland versus King said, once you move from convicted conduct to mere arrested conduct, right, conduct you've been arrested but not yet convicted for, mm -hmm. Uh, as a basis for inclusion in CODIS, that's kind of breaking one link, right, between criminal conduct and crime detection going forward, which is the principal purpose of CODIS, right? And here we're taking a, a second step that some people will be in there who are not under arrest or convicted of any crime because they're here as refugees, which they, is a lawful status. And they status. don't quite have the legal protections. Well, they fall within the scope of this policy. Maybe there's a means if you... Um, establish that you are a lawful refugee, that mm -hmm. maybe you can seek to have your DNA expunged from the database. But I, I'm not certain that that's provided for by law, nor is it all that easy to do. You'd have to know, you know, you'd have to ask your lawyer to help you with that. Right. And that's a different type of proceeding than right. the refugee determination proceedings. Mm -hmm. What does the future of privacy look like for us in terms of that's a, that's a lot to chew but in terms of data collection data information and now the the genetic portion has has come up so what does that future look on the legal side and what sort of questions are we tackling at this point so i think 
a lot of this will turn on how broadly courts implement the Carpenter decision. Mm. If Carpenter, if the Carpenter case is narrowly applied, right, if it gets applied to cell phone location data, the contents of your emails, and that's about it, then virtually everything we do moves through a third-party intermediary. And so privacy is dead, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, I think that if the Carpenter decision is robustly implemented, then it resurrects the Fourth Amendment as a robust wall of protection between a two-permeating government surveillance function and the ordinary lives of ordinary Americans. I firmly believe that privacy is an essential human good. It's necessary for human flourishing. It's necessary for human freedom. Uh, Law enforcement has an appropriate role to play in surmounting our claims to privacy when it suspects a particular individual of involvement in a particular crime. But it can't be, in my view, enough for the government to identify a database that has information about everyone and say, if we look in there, we're sure to find a crime about someone related to something. Mm -hmm. That can't be enough. And that's basically what the government is asserting when it comes to big data. Big data uh, meets the Fourth Amendment. It's a big problem, and the courts are only beginning to grapple with it. Thank you to assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.